Hi there, welcome to the Resonance Cast from Allegra Lab. I'm Ian M. Cook. In this podcast series, we discuss articles published by Allegra Lab that resonate with one another. We invite the authors to read each other's papers and then to come together to talk with someone from the Allegra Lab Editorial Collective. In this episode of Resonance Cast from Allegra Lab, I'm Jazz Kaur. I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Anthropology at SOAS, University of London. And my piece for Allegra is titled, When is a Coup a Coup? Reflections on Coups in Fiji and the USA, and what ethnography and anthropology might usefully say about them. Hi, my name is Dan White. I'm a research associate in anthropology at the University of Cambridge. And my piece for Allegra was titled Incitement, Incremental Theory for an Imminent Fascism. All right, great. So we're really happy to have both Jas and Dan here on the Allegra Resonance cast. Both of your articles were published this week. Um, but first of all, so I'd like to ask you to both summarize briefly your article that's been published. Who would like to go first? Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Dan, um, for the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, I would say that my article's part, actually, of a long conversation that I've been having myself with the notion of what is a coup. Um, it's a field of study that's been typically dominated by our political science colleagues. And so as we as we imagine and know it, that's inspired a taxonomy of coup knowledge. And I like to joke that there are as many types of coups as there are coups themselves. And I think actually that's extremely revealing because it speaks to the fact that every coup has its own unique signature, its own set of context, conditions, affects and effects. And it follows that making sense of and bringing order and coherence to this diversity can be challenging. But as an ethnographer and anthropologist, my interest lies in a different direction. I'm interested in the messy complexity of coups, the stories and relationships among which they're entangled, the imagined difference that they seek to make, and what happens when they disappear. So I studied this in relation to the 1987 and 2000 coups in Fiji, but what prompted my article for Allegra was actually the kinds of discussions I was having with colleagues during the events of uh, January the 6th at the US Capitol building. My colleagues and I have an um, interesting conversation, shall we say. We don't always agree on things. And they were really insistent that what was unfolding, both inside the Capitol building that day, before it was breached, um, during the certification of the Electoral College votes, and the breach itself amounted to a coup. At first, I was really reluctant to go down this path with them. But in hindsight, um, I was really grateful to them for the provocation because it was unsettling. And I think knowledge is most productive when it is unsettling, you know, and emergent and iterative. Because originally I sensed that the field of research I was developing and which had so far escaped anthropological theorizing was kind of slipping away from me. If all these different political acts, you know, come under the rubric of a coup, then how do I limit my kind of field of expertise? And so I found myself defensively applying a really basic definition of coups as a sudden strike or blow against the state and involving the military. 
just to limit that that sense of what is and is not a coup. And in some ways, I what resonated with me in Dan's article was this idea that I'd succumbed to a strong theory of coups. And I sat with this and I felt really discomforted by this because that's everything I argue against in my research on, on Fiji's coups. And I realized I was becoming complicit in condoning and closing off the subject of coups from the kinds of things that ethnography and anthropology have to say about these eventful dramas. So, to sum up, um, the article actually became a way for me to think and write myself out of the conundrum. Okay, great. Thank you. And you mentioned Dan's article, so uh, it's a good time then to pass over to Dan and just give us a short summary of your article. Sure, yeah. So, like Jazz, my piece started with thinking about the events of the U.S. Capitol January 6th. Um, but the actual writing was inspired, I think, less by the events themselves than a lot of the discussion on, in particular, incitement that came in the wake of those events. Um, so for me, there seemed to be something really instructive um, culturally and socially about how these debates were being framed. Um, so on one side, uh, let's call it the left for now, you have pundits who are arguing that this, this single event was a clear case of incitement. Um, where Trump's actions directly caused the mob to storm the Capitol. Um, and although these arguments became more nuanced in the days afterwards, when it was found that a lot of this was premeditated and organized, this was still kind of the dominant narrative that became featured in Trump's um, single second article of, of impeachment um, and then debated in, in subsequent hearings in the House. And then on the right, or maybe we could call the Trump aligned right, you had this absolute abdication of responsibility uh, which for me was kind of best captured in one congressman's remarks that, uh, quote, everyone is responsible for their own actions. So uh, this is what captured something really instructive to me about incitement. And I think it, it can tell us something interesting about this potentially growing radicalism in the U.S. and how in many ways we aren't likely to see it until it is kind of too late. That is, these sort of individual-centered stories, um, whether of blaming Trump on the left or of holding each individual responsible for his or her actions on the right, they marginalize social and collective explanations, you know, the kinds of explanations anthropology is usually focused on and arguably rather good at. So they view both the possibility or the denial of incitement in these overly individual and event-focused terms. Uh, and they miss the fact that, that radicalism or extremism or uh, indeed, even a kind of potential fascism grows uh, incrementally. Thus, my proposition that perhaps we need an incremental rather than an imminent theory of incitement in our public discourse, and that perhaps anthropology can can sort of assist us with this. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And that really then leads us nicely to think about, I guess, the temporality of, of our analysis when we're thinking about these things, specifically because you're both talking about events, but I'm wondering where's, whether there's a sort of short-sightedness possibly of focusing on events whether it's incitement or if it's coups um, when we're thinking about this sort of action yeah i think that's a really interesting provocation ian um and you're absolutely right in media and public and i think in a lot of intellectual discourse we are so centered on the event itself so-called um you know and if we follow vina das that's understandable in the sense that we conceive of the event in terms of this radically reorientation of everyday life experience, affects, even systems and structures. And that demands our focus 
But I think we really have to be careful about this and the kinds of epistemologies we risk playing into when we focus purely on on the event itself. I wouldn't say it's necessarily short-sighted to do that, but I think there's far more that as ethnographers and anthropologists, we can contribute to knowledge-making practices around the event. Um, you know, so for example, the events of the kind that Dan and I study, I would say, and I don't know if Dan agrees, exist in the popular imagination as ruptures. And ruptures are supposedly necessarily bad things that do bad things. They entail crisis, suffering, you know, and we think of them as naughty forms of behavior that in the case of coups and insurrection, that put democracy at risk. But really, I think we need a robust social theory and analysis to bear on events that are otherwise overly simplistically um, rendered in the media and political discourse. Um, so, for example, I'm interested in the idea that coup events are part of a society's long varied conversations and relationships. And I sense that Dan's theory of incrementalism is concerned with that too, though I think we, we frame it differently. And actually, Dan, something about your incremental theory really intrigues me in the sense that I think of incrementalism as a kind of slow, methodical, generative process. Yeah, thanks for that, Jas. Um, I think this, this framing of the question on short-sightedness for me works really well. Um, why I like this phrase is because I think it's, it's an accurate ethnographic description of at least American public media. Uh, what I mean by that I, is that I think the view that you heard in particularly American media of those events was precisely a short-sighted one. Essentially, we, we have this temporal dimension at play um, that compresses our view of an event to its immediate causes and effects rather than to its longer histories of this incrementally augmenting affect. Um, by which I mean by that, essentially the body's capacity to feel outrage, uh, for example, and, and to be willing to then act upon it. Um, however, in addition to the temporal dimension, I think there's at least one other critical dimension worth mentioning here, and then I'll try and tie that into Jazz's question, which is for me the, the technological, um, in particular that of technological mediation. So we know that social media, Twitter, blogs, chat rooms, and Facebook groups all played an enormous role in escalating feelings of increasingly radical outrage and injustice. Um, so this, this bubble effect of social media fostered these exclusive environments where outrage could grow unimpededly. Now, importantly for me, this aspect of technological mediation doesn't operate merely online or in virtual spaces, but takes place in conjunction with these carefully curated public spaces, like the, the Trump rallies, for example. Um, and these rallies are fascinating because they, they seem almost like, like very curated spaces, almost designed in a way. Um, and then, you know, they, they ultimately combine very well with the virtual communities. So you have this powerful alignment between the virtual and in-person world with powerful political effects. I mean, almost operating in a kind of terrible feedback loop that makes something like actual incitement difficult to see, but possibly and incrementally inescapable. Now, I think that that connects to Jess's question because she's exactly right. And I really appreciate um, this, this point that even if we have longer histories 
that produce events that they don't necessarily take place in a temporal frame which is um, abiding by our usual imaginary of incrementalism is they don't always just grow in these slow and steady um, pacings, if you will. So I think Jess is absolutely right to point out that sometimes we have things that quickly and um, unexpectedly ratchet things up very quickly. You know, things can get ratcheted up and then they never come back down to where they were, right? So we do have kind of a, a long durée incrementalism with these spikes. And I think incrementalism, if it's going to be theorized at all, and if it's going to be of any use to anybody, has to incorporate both those aspects. The idea that we are working in a longer temporal frame is technologically mediated, and it has these spikes of affect where we, people plan to a certain degree, people plan to meet at the Capitol and do something, but they didn't expect to do that. Yeah, that's a really interesting set of observations, um, Dan. I really like that. The, the idea about the technological mediation of incitement. You know, we've moved from the early days of digital ethnography, where we were approaching online lives alongside as running parallel to but distinct from our so-called offline real lives. Um, And I mean, I must say in the context of Fiji, particularly in the 1987 and 2000, whose technology really didn't play a part, in uh, in the circulation of news of the coups or inciting affects. People heard about 1987 through the radio news uh, just after 10 o'clock one Thursday morning. That slightly changed by the time of the 2000 coup. Um, There was something you said, Dan, that actually really intrigued me, and I think is as much as our articles resonate, there are also these really productive differences that I think um, listeners will be interested in, which is you said that, you know, people turned up to these rallies, not necessarily knowing that they were going to do what they did. And what's interesting when I bring it back to the context of coups in Fiji is that in 1987, people heard this word coup, it didn't register in the grammar of the everyday what was happening, but they knew what was happening. You know, it, it, um, it manifested in these various affective registers, even if the language existed outside of, of anything that had previously been known or heard in Fiji. And by 2000, by the 2000 coup, people were already speaking about the coup. And again, in the 2006 coup, when a, a number of years prior to that, I was conducting field work, you know, with, the, with all these whispered rumors going on, on along. So actually, that really does bring out uh, the multi-temporal scale of these critical political events. You know, this long durée that you talked about, I think, is is a really important frame um, that we that we bring to our understanding of these events, um, and which is missed predominantly by media and public discourse. Yeah, Jess, I think that's, that's a fantastic point. Um, and this, this also touches on one of, um, one of the many pieces in, in, in your article that I was really impressed by and reminded of, um, was about sort of the symbolic role that a thing like a coup 
as a language or a term or fascism or freedom or individuals in place. Um, so in many ways, the idea that, as you highlighted in the article, what was really happening in the U.S. context was not necessarily an attack on U.S. institutions, but on a kind of symbolic rendering of democracy. And I think that's, that's kind of a classic symbolic anthropological point that because it's so classical, we often lose sight of actually as anthropologists when we're doing some of our maybe more ambitious theorizing. Um, but actually members of the public, uh, people who aren't part of the anthropological tribe, so to speak, really find this point compelling that the symbolic has these really you know, real life manifestations. So the idea that you articulate there is such a strong and important one. The idea that when and where people feel most that democracy is most under threat is not when its institutions are attacked, but when its symbols are. Brilliant. Uh, I, I, it's, it's super fascinating. I want to move on, but before we do, I also something came to mind when you were both speaking. I guess about methods and what these very what these events that sit so strongly in everyone's mind might help anthropologists to do i'm wondering do they highlight the strands that need to be followed backwards because that's sometimes what's maybe quite surprising things happen and people are like wow where did that come from and so maybe the events help us to at least explore historically what those things were yeah i think this is another point that jazz emphasizes really well in her framing of you know doing really historical work but then when you combine the ethnographic component to that you enter a field either sort of you know, in the aftermath of it or pre something perhaps only partially imaginable. I'd, I'd love to hear her articulate that a bit more. Well, there's a story actually about why I entered the field when I did, which is that I was in the first year of my PhD. I'd been upgraded and I was due to go on field work in 2000. Lo and behold, there is a coup combined with SARS as it was then, and I was delayed um, until 2002. And I phoned up my then supervisor, the late uh, Professor J.D.Y. Peel, and said, look, I really need to get out there. This is exactly what I need to be studying. I mean, an ethnography of the coup as it's unfurling. And um, John's response was, oh, well, your mother's got to me already, Jazz. And the answer is no. There is no way you're going there. <laughs> um, and I was fully prepared to completely ignore foreign and um, Commonwealth, you know, policy directives on traveling to Fiji at the time. Um, you know, this idea of being... Um, of being really on the ground as a critical political event was unfolding and being ethnographically attentive to that as it, as it would take, take place in, in the space in which I'd kind of, you know, effectively be parachuting myself into. And there were one or two anthropologists of that coup who happened to be stranded in Fiji at the time, you know, and it's a, I guess a serendipitous thing for that to happen, but it's also um, from the stories that those two anthropologists have told, one of them, Susanna Trenka, you know, it's unnerving. We're in the middle of another, of another country and it's political crisis. 
all of which is, sorry, I'm very fond of telling stories, but all of which kind of brings us back to this point. I think, Dan, you know, you you brought this up previously and it's been making me think about, well, what is it that we can offer in the study of critical political events if we can't be there? You know, and Ian, you, you talked about the opportunities that we have to bring a, a more nuanced kind of knowledge about these events to bear, right? By being able to place, for example, a coup, an insurrection in the long durée, yeah, and, and figure out uh, the narratives and ideas and discourses and effects along which it has circulated over time. And I would say, actually, that we don't just bring a historical perspective to bear, we bring a future-oriented perspective to bear. Because I fully believe that when these events are supposedly brought to an end, they don't just go off and disappear somewhere. They continue to reverberate, whether that's in um, social practice, everyday life, policies, etc. Um, but it is something that I've been grappling with. Because, and Dan, I don't know whether whether you sense this, but actually anthropologists are the last people to be called on by the media to comment on eventful phenomena like coups and insurrection. And I think, you know, that's a real challenge to us. I think we need to somehow um, come together as a community of practitioners and identify uh, a method for intellectual hopefulness that enables us to not be, feel like interlopers in the study of these these things, yeah, and the affective registers along which they they circulate and emerge, but to actually really be recognised as as bringing knowledge that that matters, and that's where I think to tie that back to what you were saying, Dan, about this idea that actually. The sim the symbolism of these events really does resonate with people when you bring it to to their attention. So for me, I think the challenge is how do we maximise on that on that potential and opportunity that we have. Yeah, I think this question of how we we maximise our opportunities, how we build on our opportunities, has has a methodological component and, and a theoretical component. Um, for me, the methodological one, obviously the, the better place to start, I think, um, was highlighted very nicely in your storytelling because storytelling is a method that anthropologists do very well. So I really appreciated that story. And if we combine that with some other, more in, not, not more innovative, but let's say more recent methods um, that the pandemic has highlighted to us, those of digital anthropology, I think then we, we start to see some of the power um, of anthropology's methods in the sense that although anthropologists have always been storytellers of a sort or story translators of a sort, combining that capacity with a sensitivity to new media technologies shows how stories affect and augment based on different technological mediums, right? Um, so I think this requires um, a pedagogical move as well, um, designing actual anthropology methods courses that are focused on technology, among many other things. It requires reading um, literature in the anthropology of technology, as well as of media and design, such as Ludovic Coupoyer or Natasha Schull's brilliant ethnography of uh, machine gambling in Las Vegas, for example. 
and basically going as far as we can, helping students develop technological methods of cataloging their, their data, whether they be using their own smartphones or social media apps to connect with people and to experiment with new ways of, of basically cataloging ethnographic encounters and, and even different ways of cons constructing one's field notes, as it were. So that's, that's the methodological dimension on, on which much more could be said. Um, and then I think we have the, the theoretical component, which is also important here. And I think this is something that our articles both talk about as well. And, and this um, returns to your, your point, Jas, about how anthropologists are often the last people to be called on to offer their thoughts, at least these days, right? And so for me, in my article, I sort of tried to address this point through um, um, borrowing a distinction from the anthropologist Katie Stewart makes right between um, this idea of an overly strong theory and potentially at times a more productively weak theory. Um, so an example of a strong sociological or a strong social scientific theoretical approach to incitement, for example, would be Richard Wilson and Jordan Kuyper's 2020 piece that I cited on incitement in the era of populism, where they essentially draw from this wide range of social scientific perspectives um, sociology, but also law, history, and critically psychology to outline the specific set of criteria by which one can evaluate a context, critically this context where incitement is likely to happen. So they develop this incredibly strong conceptual tool to communicate this, which is what they call the, uh, quote, incitement matrix. Um, and every time I say that or read it, I think I should have like a better joke prepared that references the, <laughs> the film. Uh, I, I feel like there's got to be one good joke among all the obvious bad jokes there, but I, I haven't found it yet. Um, but anyway, um, using their matrix, which includes criteria like, um, you know, the speaker occupies a position of authority or the speaker is perceived by supporters as charismatic. By these criteria, it seems like Trump absolutely gets a 10 for 10 here easily, that Trump is like the quintessential case for incitement. And so from that point of view, this is really useful for taking legal rulings of incitement out of the discretion of judges and juries who are essentially going off idiosyncratic theories of whether a person's actions indeed led to a violent action or not. And, you know, I mean, we need that, that legal terrain for for determining whether cases do or do not lead to incitement. However, on the other hand, there are some reasons to take caution. Um, looking at the matrix again in the case of Trump, it almost reads as if the matrix was made with Trump in mind, um, <laughs> even though it wasn't, it was made afterwards. But that's the power of strong theories like Wilson and Kuyper's. They read really convincingly. So the problem here is that just because one makes a rigorous analytic for incitement does not mean it will only be applied in fair, in measured, or in just ways. And incitement is, I think, one of these particularly dangerous tools, given that it addresses the messy complexity of social causes and effects that can be used by governments to incriminate any number of people and actions it disagrees with, uh, as we've re recently seen in, in Myanmar and, and Russia, Uganda, and elsewhere. So. For me, there may be reason to balance this stronger type of theory with what Katie Stewart calls this weaker theory, an approach that I think we're both trying to cultivate a bit in our pieces to some extent, this approach that pays attention to this middle zone of temporality and mediation, where things incrementally happen, uh, like somebody's 
gradual journey through social media rabbit holes, for example, right? Where they come out on one side with far different affective capacities, uh, capacities to act or to, to storm a capital, for example, <laughs> than they had on the prior side. And I think this is where fieldwork and the ethnographic voice can effectively operate um, by essentially tracking and telling these more detailed stories. Um, and I think Jazz's piece and, and her work on Coops and Fiji in general, capture this aspect of the incremental and the thick complexity of political turmoil really well. Thanks, Dan. It's interesting, isn't it, that trying to map a way through between stronger and weaker theory is just so immensely difficult. And again, storytelling. I was in a room with uh, predominantly American political scientists who were trying to rethink um, and produce um, a more socially aware set of criteria about how you define coups in order to then come together and um, develop a new global data set of coups, there being two primarily um, that we look at. And I was the only anthropologist in the room, was invited. And I started to do as I'm doing now, tell stories that I imagined they would welcome because it seemed to align with their aims and ambitions in that workshop. And uh, this white male political scientist sort of sat back in his chair, you know, um, taking up this space, being very expansive in um in the way he was sitting and then leaned forward very suddenly and said well that's all anecdote and that really shook me because these the, the stories i was trying to tell were to my mind robustly ethnographic and they did something quite distinct from what's happening um around the question of incitement to do with the US Capitol uh, building riots, breaching, etc. on January the 6th, in that they were trying, uh, I was trying through my stories to individualize you know, coup experiences and affects and behaviors, because the story of coups in Fiji is one wrought in ethnic conflict amongst indigenous Fijians and um, the descendants of Indian indentured laborers, slaves, in other words, brought over from British colonial India to modernize Fiji, effectively. Um, and over the years, that, that conflict has solidified, has gained a huge moral and symbolic legitimacy as the structuring principle of Fiji, you know, such that um, there is a statement, well, oh, ethnicity is a fact of life in Fiji. You know, and, it, and it's not intoned in a worrying or with a worrisome tone. It is, well, this is what, what we need to deal with. You know, we need to uh, situate ourselves in difference. These circulate along, I would say, collective political emotions. Yeah. Group against group. My securitization and existence against yours. And then when you come down to to the coup proper, shall we say, you actually find that there are all these variations. These huge political events 
come into contact and confrontation with, I would say, social reality on the ground, with relationships that people develop amongst themselves. Yeah, that can kind of produce different affective registers and responses amongst them, you know, through the conversations that they have um, and their experiences of the other. There's another thing actually you, you spoke about that has been really interesting me lately. Um, I'm phenomenally bad, as you both know, with technology. But I've been really excited to take part in a filming class over the last four weeks and uh, to think about how technology can open up spaces. And I keep coming to this word, open up spaces for more productive conversations. So initially, I originally, I would have thought, well, you know, if you if you do filming in an ethnographic location, that's merely an output. But actually, there are all these um, opportunities that exist to tell our deeply immersive ethnographic stories through the medium of various uh, technologies, I would say, and to open them up to debate and scrutiny, you know, by those we study with, as well as those, you know, we, uh, those who form our kind of community of, uh, of anthropological practitioners. Mm -hmm. Nobody's super interesting, because I was thinking then when you were talking and how it, and how it all fits together, because on the one hand, we want to give our insights as anthropologists out there, right? And then sometimes people tell us, oh, you only have stories or whatever. Actually, one of my worst moments as an academic was when I gave a public talk in India where I do research, not in the city where I do research. And um, it was about um, moral policing, so vigilantism and, and, and the Hindu right. And in some relatively articulate um supporters of the hindu right came and then after my presentation they were like where's your data all you've got is stories and this like started to attack me publicly and i was just out the phd at the time and i was maybe not so great at being able to defend the discipline of anthropology because to me that all made sense of course stories i've got lots of stories they were like where's the data so i think one of the things is we need to get better as anthropologists is, is defending ourselves or promoting ourselves rather um to other people but then exactly i was thinking that and it's about the time that we need to spend thinking about stuff. Maybe, maybe that's also why we're reluctant not to be the people putting our hands up and saying, "Hey, yeah, I'll come talk on, I'll come talk on TV." Because we sometimes need a bit of time to work through the data, especially when it has affective dimensions, including on ourselves as ethnographers. And so, there's a, maybe there's a, maybe there's an issue there. And exactly then thinking about technology and about what technology can afford us. And, and you've both spoken to this in terms of methods and how we might want to rethink what we do with technology and, and so on, is maybe we need to be a bit more open and vulnerable and free at working and thinking through our ideas out loud in forums like this, like through podcasting or in other ways to say, okay, this is not my final word on this, which is somehow how we have to present it in journal articles, right? You know, like we have to robustly defend everything and, you know, um, but okay, no, you know what? This is what I'm thinking about. Let's work it out together. Let's think it through together. And maybe in a sense that might also be good for the discipline because it lifts the hood on our 
on the, how we do things on how we think through things and that should make it stronger right it shouldn't be showing our vulnerability should make us stronger in some sense yeah Ian, i think that's a really nice framing and i, I would definitely agree that the power of the anthropological perspective in this capacity here um, is its open-ended quality, is its willingness to not have a final answer. Um, and it's important to, I think, be confident in that assertion that we should be wary of sort of final answers. And I think Jas's story, again, highlights this really well. Um, you know, the story of the anthropologist telling stories when prompted to provide evidence, you know, and then the person asking for that already from the start, not going to accept that story as evidence because that person is sort of positivist oriented, whether it be a political scientist or, or otherwise, is essentially looking, to, looking for a different kind of data set. That person is looking to cut through the messiness, right? And to find an underlying structure, theme, or cause that explains the messiness in simplified terms. And I think what Jazz's article highlights so well is that it's the mess that we're after. Most importantly, because that complex whole, to use a classic definition of anthropology, um, that complex whole has, and now to borrow a phrase from Jazz's piece, epiphenomenal effects, right? And those emergent effects, those epiphenomenal effects, are really important, and they are a cause of the messiness, of the complex whole. So I think for anthropologists communicating, it's not just that we have to be okay with sort of less strong theories and descriptions, um, to revert to sort of my, my framing bar from Katie Stewart, but it's that we have to identify that there's other kinds of data at play here. Um, there's data that manifests from complex realities, and the best way to get at that very real and uh, operationalizing data is to tell as thick, complex, empirical, detailed, and as compelling stories as possible. That's a wonderful way to end it, I think. So I'd like to thank you both for coming on Resonance Cast by Allegra. Great. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Jess. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Ian, so much. It's been fun. <laughs> it was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> You've been listening to Resonance Cast from Allegra Lab. Thank you so much for your ears for the last half an hour or so. If you want to find more episodes in the series, you can find them on our website or by subscribing using your podcast app. Music has been provided by Acoustic Doodles.